0: Hey, everybody, Melissa McKenzie here, publisher of The American Spectator, joined with my co host, Scott McKay, contributing editor to The American Spectator. This is the Spectacle podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Our longtime friend, or at least a longtime friend of mine, and I think Scott's too, is Ron Coleman, the legendary conservative. Attorney, who at one time was the only guy in the conservative space who knew things about the digital world, and was the guy who I have relied on for years whenever I've needed help um, or had a question. Ron's always been ready with an answer. So welcome, Ron. We're so glad to have you.
1: Thank you very much, and I will repeat what I have said when uh, when you were on my show, and whenever the American Spectator comes up, I am a creature a creation of the American Spectator I started reading it when I was in high school back uh um, um, you know when it was being chiseled uh, uh you know in 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 granite and um it, it it had such an incredible effect on my way of seeing the world I felt so vindicated and it's a real honor to be uh, on this program and to see you guys again
0: well, it's good. It's good to have you. I mean, I, I mean, that was certainly the story for me, too. Before I came to the American Spectator, like I was a huge fan of Armand Jr. because I read the magazine right out of uh, somebody um, gave me a copy of the magazine and then gave me a subscription to it for my birthday, which tells you what kind of nerd I was in my, <laughs> my teenage and t- in 20, early 20s. And um, and then of course I absolutely love Ben Stein and would go to the back of the magazine and read his column first. And they then
2: they
1: both back. affected my writing style to this day. I still hear the voices, you know. Mm-hmm. Ben, you can't really only Ben could write like Ben. Right. But but you know, just so so such a such a such a great thing that that you know amp spec is still around.
0: Yeah, well, this, this
2: was the first thing that uh, American Spectator was the first publication I ever subscribed to with my own money. So uh, I guess all three of us can, can, can claim a, a long lineage as, as readers of the magazine before having anything to do professionally. So that's great.
0: Yep, it was, I listened to Rush, I read the American Spectator, and I read the Wall Street Journal. And I don't know, and that was as a college student. <laughs> so I mean, I, I, that tells you how completely nerdy I was. All you're, going you're
1: not gonna that. move. You're not gonna move me on this. I mean, I would. You know, I mean, ner- My wife always always jokes. Uh, Gosh, what if we would have got? What if we would have got to college together? What, what, you know, I said we we would have never met each other because you were in the library all the time you know i'm i'm used to hanging around with nerds
0: well okay so you're in the right place here so what we wanted to talk to you about is of course um october 7th changed the uh, world in a way certainly changed the middle east and certainly changed things for israel and um the war has been going on now uh for a while and a big portion of Hamas has been kind of decimated and the infrastructure is being, that has supported them, like the underground tunnels and everything else is being destroyed. And it feels like we're getting close to an end game here. And I was wondering um, about the other side of this. So Israel's going to win totally and completely. I mean, they you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. It seems like at this point, like it's it it. it where in the past they had pulled their punches, this seems like the like that they're going to go all the way with it. But what happens um, at the end, and what does what what do things look like in Gaza after this?
1: Very difficult question, but let let me, as I'm wont to do challenge the question a little bit okay because i don't think much changed except the widespread perception of reality people who have been familiar with hamas and familiar with gaza and familiar with this dispute uh, and the passions and prejudices that underlie it have known about what became so brutally clear to us on October 7th for a very very long time what I did see was more than ever two things more people who came around to the view that okay I I get it I I I get it these people are not amenable to being negotiated with. And what we saw was that a very, very large percentage of people, people who might have been your neighbors, my neighbors, colleagues, social media friends, have black hearts. People we thought we shared a worldview with. Suddenly found it within them to rationalize phenomenally brutal crimes. Um it was very revealing. It was and so so that, yes, the world has changed, but mostly in the nature of trans of transparency and people sort of showing what they're really about now to answer your question which I still think is the same question I don't know I'm a lawyer in Newark okay (laughs) I've been to Israel a few times all my children have studied in Israel uh they're all adult children now they studied as rabbinical students in neighborhoods of Jerusalem that have would not have been affected by by any of this in any meaningful way um everyone where I live with an Orthodox Jewish enclave called the Clifton down Route 21 a couple miles or up um is very acutely aware of what's going on and what's been going on since uh we got word on the Jewish holiday of Simchas Torah that something terrible had happened in Israel um and i know many many parents of children who are serving in the israel defense forces it does seem as you have observed melissa that israel is going to do the responsible thing by its citizens this time around and hardly pull any punches i mean if, if you know at one point somebody uh who I consider to be a friend and, and, and sympathetic, said, well, this have just reached the point of indiscriminate, you know, carpet bombing at this point. And that's preposterous. That's, that's not what, this is not what that looks like. But without getting into the, into the details, yes, they're playing for keeps. There isn't going to be any of this, you know, partners for peace stuff. I understand that what Israel is doing is, clearing a five kilometer buffer zone inside the gaza side of the border um which is going to probably be very intensely secured that is a tactical answer to the problem but it isn't a strategic one or or a political one um What do you do with an entire population? And it's not just about Hamas. Yes, you can find many, many videos of everyday Palestinians um, criticizing Hamas. Be that as it may, this is a population that is thoroughly determined not to live in peace with Jews in this part of the world there doesn't seem to be an answer to that problem because we are moderns so we will not notwithstanding the accusations that are routinely made against uh the state of israel we will not annihilate that population and raise that civilization such as it is uh and salt the earth it's just something we don't do anymore. Other people do it. Usually Muslims doing it to other Muslims. Nobody really cares about that. I don't know if, I don't know what that solution looks like. You know, I, I don't think anyone does. So also it may very well be that all you have is tactical solutions. Hmm. Well,
0: I mean... Uh
1: conversation killer, I know.
0: <laughs> well, the thing is, is, I think that's a pretty realistic response. And, it, and Gaza isn't the only, um, you know, part of their uh, territory that they're really having to defend and deal with. They've got, you know, Hezbollah and Lebanon. And, and so this is a wider scope. Um, one thing that I feared was that this could draw in um, the whole M- Middle East into some sort of conflict. And unlike in the 70s, um, Israel's um, neighbors are far better trained, armed, and, you know, it would be a different game. One of the things, and I kind of wanted to get your opinion about this, is that um the Abraham Accords, which it seems like the Biden administration has done everything in their power to undo. And I kind of feared would be undone by this whole thing. Um, Some of Israel's former frenemies, because, you know, there were, you know, they had, if they were friendly, they were on the down low. And if, um, but, you know, this, signatories on the Abraham Accords and then the, the other um, countries who were, were friendly to the agreement have been very restrained and Egypt is like fortifying its border and with Gaza. And so nobody really wants the Gazans to come their direction uh, I'm talking ab- about you know other Muslim populations, and other uh, than the
1: other than the Houthis, you know, the Houthis, uh, who are lunatics. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and look, we're really talking about pre-modern civilizations here. They might be able to work modern weapons, but they don't have. They simply have left nothing not, they left behind. They have no concept of modern, modern civilization, in in any of the any of the mores of conduct, or you know, worldview. That we, and I'm not such a modern. You know, I mean, you know, I I I I study and live by the words of medieval rabbis. Okay, but yes, on the other hand, I, you know, I I do use technology, fine. I understand I think your point is very well taken that Egypt is a much more of a is in many ways more of a threat than it was Mm -hmm. in 1973. Mm -hmm. On the other hand um, the military there has concluded quite rationally that it doesn't make sense for them and then nor nor do they have any particular benefit in the absence of pan Pan Arabism Right. which is not a thing. It's simply not a thing. And and it, it, it,
2: they tried that and it didn't work too well.
1: It didn't work well. And and, and you don't have, you know, you don't have those, you know, that kind of bathist party, you know, figurehead that, you know, that, that, that and, which was a Marxist ideology, except for its right. nationalist aspect. These people were leftists. Um, The Arab world is, you know, the, the relatively civilized parts of the Arab world are really trying to, get on with not being impoverished Mm -hmm. and the really poisonous thing you know there's there's the Abraham Accords but there's also obviously the phenomenal and bizarre obsession that the Obama wing of the Democratic Party which controls it and which controls the government uh their obsession with Iran because that is, you know, the struggle for the hearts and minds of people, uh, Arabs and non-Arabs in the Muslim world in the largely in the, in, in the Near East, um, is between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And a lot of conservatives and liberals have to stop looking at saudi arabia as if it were 1984 and we're arguing over the AWACS. it is a gigantic it's a different different world they have been de facto allies of israel for a very long time they share many and and also as as you observe melissa people have really had it with the radical palestinians they i mean why qatar continues to put up with it i guess it's because they've got still a a radical orientation um but the south you know they've dumped a lot of money on these people it's gone into the it's gone into their pockets it's gone into tunnels and weapons there there's really a desire in i think a large part of this world to move into the 21st century if not in terms of social mores, but, in you know, economically and even to some extent politically, the really, you know, the, these really uh, charismatic dictators, you know, whether it's pan-Arabism or otherwise, they're not there anymore. We, we, you know, you have these military regimes. What is an interesting problem is Lebanon. Uh, but the reason, you know, Lebanon has become a a a pretty nasty place i mean it's been a fairly nasty place for a very very long time since we were children but and it was once really like a garden of eden um they have gotten rid of or sent underground what had formerly been the christian community there Mm -hmm. and there's really no offset to the Hezbollah slash Iran influence in, in that country. On the other hand, it's not so bad. And this again reminds me of the Egypt, Egypt situation. One of the images I was making the rounds on social media last week was of someone in in Lebanon opened a store. I I don't know whether it was an electronics store or you know, some consumer store. That was called October seventh, okay? And everybody, you know, was passing this around like, well, these people are freaking animals, you know I mean this is their idea. And remember, Lebanon is overwhelmingly Palestinian. Let's also remember that the Transjordan, which is the part of the con- the part of the world that was the the British mandate, is mostly Lebanon. So, evidently, they the the Lebanese government, which has not been particularly cooperative with Israel in, in, in recent years, the way they have been even in the past, they made these people change the name of that store. It wasn't it wasn't a good look for them. That means that there's a sensibility outside of Iran mm-hmm. that didn't exist before, and another. Thing that has changed since the 70s is that we are no longer living in a great power, in a, you know, in a bilateral great or, or or a bipolar great power world. You the Russians really aren't a concern. And China is not really a concern. Yes, they can they can ship and sell weapons. Yes, they can harass, but they don't neither Russia Russia's got its hands quite full uh and China is I think much more interested in what's going on in the South China Sea um yes would they would they like to undermine any opportunity for the United States to assert or reinforce hegemony yes they would and so would the Biden administration um Frankly, that is more of a problem than China is Washington.
0: Now, do you think that, um, so Thomas Matthew came out and said that he wouldn't be voting for a stripped down aid package for Israel. And um, I think it was Pod Horitz who said that he was a raging anti-Semite. And I was wondering what you were thinking about um There's some, and this I'm seeing this on the right. It's certainly on the left, but the the left I feel like is wholly anti-Semitic. So that's just a, you know, and this night finally just out there, which is to me that this is shocking to anybody. Is shock? It's just annoying because it's it has been so obvious for so long. The institutions, you know, one of my daughter's friends was a, a student at Berkeley. And um, you know, basically agnostic, but um, Jewish in heritage, and had to keep his head down low, and you know, in in a supposedly liberal school. I mean, it's just it's it's gotten so bad. Anyway, and this was some years ago, but I'm wondering about the kind of. Um, let Israel take care of Israel. They're a wealthy country. Um, America is in debt, America should be taking care of itself. Um, all of this money going to foreign adventures, yada yada. What do you think about that argument?
1: I think it has some merit. Uh the thing to remember about Thomas Massey is that i i think it was someone from msnbc which like a stop clock is going to be right a couple times a day is a performative contrarian he he is he's trying to make certain points that are easy to that are easy to lose and it's not so different frankly from what um from what uh paul has historically done um but, it, it, you know, when you, when you decide to, to make such moves, you know, to be consistent, um, and Ron Paul, I think, actually, more, more so than Rand Paul, it comes to a certain amount of risk. It There actually is a, a point of view among supporters of Israel that Israel should get off the teat of the United States. Um That it doesn't really need to be as dependent on the U.S. financially, and it's not so dependent on the U.S. financially, but that it ought to wean itself away, uh, enable, give it, and remove leverage that the U.S. has over it, which would even be, which would be a favor probably for, for for all concerned. I don't like the idea that anyone who, first of all. The intellectual premise that you don't have to be pro—that that, that a failure to be pro-Israel doesn't make you an anti-Semite is, in its pristine, abstract sense, true. We do, however, find that those who are anti-Israel are readily demonstrated to be anti-Semites, almost, almost yeah. to a man. Right. You know, yeah. uh But it isn't – I think there's a lot to be said for reforming that relationship um, from from a pro-Israel point of view. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of the money thing, I mean, I think that is a red herring. Frankly, money is spent by this government. There are no budgets anymore. There are – I mean – the executive branch just writes checks; it sends money. I mean, we have—we're talking about a much bigger problem than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, like, it's not as if we don't have the money for the reason we're, that we're not sending money to the border. It has nothing to do with money. Right. It has to do with an entirely different political uh, agenda, which is to not enforce immigration law. It has got nothing to do with money. But when money is on the table, when money is being discussed and money is being given out, it does make you a target. And you, guess what? Every taxpayer is entitled to question where his money is
2: being spent. Ron, would you would you say that, um, the, well, let me phrase it this way. I mean, it would seem like what the Israelis have always needed from the American government was not so much money but diplomatic cover to do what they needed to do in Gaza, particularly after October 7th. Um, And we're talking about sending money to Israel because that diplomatic cover has not been as forthcoming as perhaps it could have been when you have the Biden administration, you know, continuously— Kind of ankle biting at the israelis about uh tactics and no oh, we don't want to see civilians and maybe we should have a ceasefire and all this other different stuff um when what they could have said is look if this is it go get them and just leave it and and you know like try to finish this as fast as you can but we're gonna we're gonna stay out we're gonna keep everybody else out you know scott
1: my opinion on this is that the United States government has been just about as supportive of Israel as could possibly be expected if the U.S. were to maintain any credibility with the rest of the world as not being controlled by Israel's interests. Uh, I, I, I mean, compared to I mean let's remember James Baker secretary of state okay the bush and reagan years the, the 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 criticism for the uh the uh you know the iraqi um nuclear reactor attack this has been pretty muted stuff yes you know as I was saying what I was about the the financial piece, and as you point out, it's not so much the money, but the money does have a useful purpose, which is that it gives the impression that the Americans are exerting. Like, I, there's sort of a, you, I know that you know that I know that you know kind of thing going on here. Are, are the Americans really exerting pressure? Is there a belief that it would be worse if the Americans weren't? Again, it, it really does op- make a very big opening for Israel's biggest critics. Let's be as neutral as possible to say, you, you know, we're giving him money, so we should also be exerting pressure on them. I, fine. But it is a very complicated operation and a complicated you know uh and you're 100 percent right scott it's 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 about you know it's about the role of the united states and it's very you know it, it it's complicated because there's this narrative about colonialism right which is which we didn't hear about in the old days in the old days it was arabs versus jews then colonialism cultural marxism became part of every left-wing narrative and it has been very very gleefully latched onto for use in this dispute which is irony beyond irony because how did these how did these palestinians get there was it by you know, did, did God pl- is that the where God placed them uh, after the Tower of Babel? I don't think so. Right, Arabs rule the entire Middle East not because the, the Middle East is Arabia, but because of colonialism. Again, yes, we are seeing different masks being being um, donned to very very thinly disguise. What really is anti-Semitism, but it's also anti-Americanism. These right. two track each other. And I learned this in the American Spectator many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. These two consistently track each other. You'll never find, ever, you'll never find one about the other. And anyone who tells you, I'm America first, uh, but I don't like Israel. Follow follow the trail. See what it is that, when they mean to say America first, what it is they consider America these are not patriots. Uh, Can you be critical of Israel and be a patriot? Yeah, you can. Uh, But it is, you can't be an anti-Semite, an anti-Semite and be a patriot, because inevitably anti-Semites believe in uh, conspiracy theories uh, Rothschild nonsense, you know, and, and and which inevitably means that you don't really even believe that the government is is our is in any way a democratic government, and the and and it's the Fed and the well, you know,
2: all this. And, and the, and, well, and the, and the key thing is is that it's and, and you know it's it's uh, something that Ron Paul said a long time ago, which is that racism is collectivism, and that's also true of anti-Semitism. These are people yeah. that are collective thinkers.
1: Yeah, and this um, yes, group, you know, group guilt is 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 savagery. Yes. Group guilt is savagery, and it's a gigantic part of everything go- And and what and you know, as you guys both know, I'm very active on Twitter, and I'm constantly seeing people talk about the Jews. Or in its more pernicious right. form, the Jew. <laughs> By the way, I'm I'm the Jew.
2: You don't even get I'm, the S, right? <laughs>
1: okay because that's that's an echo that's an echo of mein Kampf. okay Mm. the jew Mm. what do you mean the jew you mean some jew some jew took your girlfriend away so now it's the jews it's this whole concept of look at all these me look at all these people who are in media who are jews you think these people and that being Jewish has any meaning whatsoever to these people, right? And what they're inevitably talking about is some kind of racial connection, which is a kind of Nazi way of looking at the world. And as you say, it's collectivist. It 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 it, it denudes people of their of of their in of their per, of their personhood, and then their individuality and their liberty. It's a great point. I, I yeah. never I don't recall hearing hearing it the name of Ron Paul before
2: yeah well and I, you know and it's of, of course this is something and and uh I guess I can tease it uh I was on your podcast a little while ago and it's it's gonna yeah, which I guess one will next come week out first, gonna so. go. <laughs> yeah um and you know we talked a lot about uh the, you know because I wrote the the book about Obama racism revenge and ruin and you know that collectivist thinking, Um, You know, if you want to talk about the Obama Democrats, like this is probably the single most uh, descriptive feature of their politics is collectivist thinking. And, you know, I you know, with what you're saying, I think you've given me something to think about here, because it the anti-Semitism that you do get from so many in that administration and so many within that movement. You see it on the college campuses and all the rest of the stuff. Um, You know, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe collectivist thinkers are inevitably going to be anti Semites. Um, Mm,
0: I, I don't know about that because, okay, so Ron, I don't know if you read it, but I wrote something that was somewhat controversial and had one of my. That one of uh, well both of our main editors, Vladi Plazinski and uh, Seth Foreman, on the weekend are both Jewish, but um, one of heritage more so, and one religiously as well. But anyway, and I've had them look at it before I published it. But one of the things that I think has come up in regard to this that that concerns me. Being someone who loves Israel, being someone who loves Jewish people, obviously, um, is that so much of what has been taught on college campuses and so much of the ideology that we're discussing here of this kind of um, uh, uh, breaking down of structures and critical theory going back to um uh theories brought into America post, well, you know, um, during World War II were predominantly by Jewish professors talking about and dividing people down based on their um uh, power structures, which is a a, you know, a communist or however you want to say it way of thinking, and then now are are um, kind of going. Well, wait a minute, we are oppressed too. And when they're being viewed now by you know all across the country, we're seeing these Hamas protesters, a dumber a bunch of people I don't think I've ever seen, <laughs> who are who are going after you know, Jewish people as being the white oppressor. And so the, the very people who taught some of this theory, many of them Jewish, on college campuses, not all, of course, um, are protesting against this and not saying that we need to get rid of this division, but saying Jewish people need to be uh, re-looked at as a co oppressed class of people.
1: Yes, what 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 a disastrous what a disastrous proposal that is. Um, it is it, it fails on so many levels. You have a problem here with you know the definition of Jewishness right? So very, very, very few of any of the people that you're referring to who are these collectivists um had Jewish sensibilities they might have Jewish sensibilities in the sense of they think like Jewish people but their their moral much less religious frame of reference was was not Jewish they replaced Judaism uh with collectivism with usually with Marxism and Marx was a Jew who wrote very very um awful anti-semitic stuff they these people now you know let's think of the the intellectuals the mid-century mid-20th century intellectuals Mm -hmm. uh you know who made who had made up so much of the faculties uh in in the elite institutions they were not obviously anti-semites in the eliminationist sense but they were contemptuous usually of of traditional Jewish religion and society right today's Jewish members of the elite some of whom are in academia but many many more of whom are in the worlds of business and media are a gigantic part of the problem because it's not only that they don't care about being Jewish, but it's in fact the opposite. The fact that they're Jewish, and this was also true of that generation, of that earlier generation, the fact that they're Jewish, makes them believe that in order to prove their bona fides as collectivists or as liberals, that they must be critical of Jews. So you have the New York Times. Mm-hmm which has consistently made the destruction, the, the media destruction of the ortho, of, of, of the phenomenally successful Orthodox Jewish community in the New York area, which, while paying the same taxes as everyone else, maintains its own set of schools and its own social organizations, and which is, phenomenally uninvolved in crime and most social ills. The New York Times can't stand this. The New York Times is an institution very, very largely informed by Jews who want to prove how good they can be at being critical of Jews. And that's to a large extent also, I mean, all these phony Jews, uh, and I say phony, I don't know whether or not they are literally Jewish or not, most people under 50 if the last name is jewish they their mothers probably aren't jewish because the intermarriage rate exceeds 50 percent, going back now you know a good generation i don't want to get into that at all but yes you you're you're pointing out this the, the, to a large extent and I, i've written on this jews have brought the the american jewish community has brought this on itself Look at the Biden White House. Look at the Anti-Defamation League. Um, listen, when anti-Semites tell me the Jews are responsible for all the immigrants that have been let into, in, into European countries, come on. You killed every single Jew in Europe. That's right? Right. a
2: terrible argument.
1: <laughs> but, but And you then you're, you're able to identify a couple of people who went back, rebuilt communities, and then became... You know, stupid-ass liberals who are in favor of refugee... These are democratic countries, okay? They make the decisions they want to make. And if the Europeans are so, so baffled morally that they associate guilt over the Holocaust with uh, letting North African immigrants into their countries to ravage a civilization... I can't do anything about that, but don't blame that on the Jews. Right. But in the United States, where Jews have achieved prominence and have escaped the worst persecution, there is an identity crisis. And what is going to have to happen is, it might not happen during my lifetime, but it's in the process of happening, which is that, People who are meaningfully identified as Jews are going to be those who are living Jewish lives, because we are outstripping the assimilated Jews in every conceivable demographic. And that's going to clarify a lot of
2: things. Well, I I think that's a great point, because, um, and, and this is true on the Christian side as well, The religious observant, both Christians and Jews, are the ones that are having babies, whereas the secularized folks, the post-Christians and the post-Jewish, simply are not. Um, And so, you know, uh, without the cultural forces that turn the kids of observant Christians and Jews into secularized versions of, of those subcultures, I guess, there, that there aren't going to be any more of these people. Um, and of course, that has something to do with why the schools are so vigorous in destroying your kids. And it has something to do with why the New York Times can't stand the, the Orthodox Jews in New York with their schools that do not indoctrinate people into. Yeah, I mean, it all fits together, obviously. And you know what um, else
1: those schools don't do? They don't send kids to the Ivy League, even though their average IQ in those schools, I guarantee you. Is compared given what Harvard and Yale are now accepting, right? Believe me, but we're not interested. Listen, I went to Princeton and Northwestern. My children aren't getting anywhere near campuses like that. They're all phenomenally intelligent. their Their mother has uh, credentials like mine. They, 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 they're accomplished rabbinical scholars and educated and literate in 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 secular studies it's a new era we're not buying into the same elite um institutions and symbolism and the the amazing thing about that is uh, not the amazing thing but that is also part of that resentment from the new york times because we're building much the way many other subcultures are building we're building alternatives to these to these um social you know systems that have so failed us and so let us down. You know, for all the talk about what this or that minority has done to undermine uh, uh, American culture, some of which may have have a great deal of of merit, it's the majority that was supposed to be the gatekeepers, that was supposed to value its own heritage, and that has let the barbarians into the gate.
2: No question about
0: it. Well, you know, what you're talking about, uh, about how the Orthodox are creating their own institutions. uh, it's happening in the Christian world too. And it's happening, it's the interesting- And and
1: higher education as well. And
0: higher education as well. And and what I've seen like with my, um, you know, the friends of like my daughter who were all brilliant, right, like, uh, but because they were white, because they were male, um, because they were Christian or agnostic or whatever, they wouldn't, they were not uh the Ivy didn't want them anyway like the, the they'd look at the zip code these kids were from and wouldn't want them and so but what's happening is these kids are getting full ride scholarships to uh state schools and so like the riches of of some of these other schools and then parents are starting and individuals are starting new schools. So like, there's a lot of like classical education, both in higher ed and uh, primary schooling. Um, I just heard of, and it's happening lower too. This is like, I was so excited about this over in Austin. They're starting a Catholic Montessori school. Well, I love Montessori. It's just a wonderful program. Well, to have that, and have it specifically, you know, tailored to uh, a Catholic worldview. That's wonderful. I'm all for it. And this is happening throughout education. I think to your point, Ron, a generation from now, America looks very different because not only are the the truly um, Orthodox, whether they're Christian, Jewish, or whatever, uh, out Out uh, breeding everybody, but they're also intellectually changing the world, and it's and it's the seeds have been planted, and it's going to come to fruition in this next generation.
1: And what a lot of people don't appreciate also, I'm you know, there has been this really repulsive policy decision to flood our country the way Europe has been flooded with uh, people from cultures that are utterly unlike ours and whose values and whose sensibilities are unlike ours and who have no interest in assimilating and fine these people are are they going to ruin our country the way they are ruining france and germany and and the uk i don't know but i do know it isn't so clear you know all the Hispanics and these are people are overwhelmingly not Hispanics. Latinos in this country, a generation after really major major population influxes have taken place, they're still not in meaningfully in positions of leadership and power. You have to you can't, numbers alone won't do it. You need to have cultural institutions and traditions and an individual achievement going back to our earlier point that gets you yes you can name your token judges and you know your you know your cabinet positions to people to make it look, oh, for diversity diversity mm-hmm. but right. at the end of the day real leadership comes from real achievement and in the face of the lack of achievement, what we see in in, in the traditionally elite institutions is, well, we're not going to recognize achievement anymore. <laughs> right. We're just going to wish, we're just going to wish it yeah. away. That's a short-term um, strategy for rent, uh, you know, for um for rent seeking. Right. But it doesn't actually build you a society. It destroys the society. And at the end of the day, quality should out but for one thing and the wild card is how much will violence and disorder Mm -hmm. and the 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 utter collapse of, of of the urban centers of of our country how much will that make it impossible to continue doing business for anyone
2: right
0: Oh, that is yeah, a... you have
2: to have some semblance of a civil society before right. a, a true meritocracy can take place. Exactly, and we've seen that in in you know blue city after blue city over the last fifty years, um, where you know I mean unless it's unless it's kids that you know can can shoot three pointers or dunk or you know run a four three forty, I mean you, you, it's really hard to to spot a great deal of meritocracy in you know these urban collectivist settings, right. um, you know, and, and yeah, you fill, you fill those places up with a bunch of illegals who, you know, like you said, are, are in poorly poised to assimilate with that. Way. Um, and you don't have institutions strong enough to overcome that, you know, and yeah, it's, you're, you know, what you're not going to see is social mobility. You're going to see the entire thing get dragged down, um, which is, you know, Everybody who sees that, obviously, uh, or everybody who pays attention sees that. Um, and, I, you know, and I think the people that are foisting it on the country see it. They actually think they benefit from it, uh, which is why it's being done. You know, These people are not. I mean, the, the Biden administration and the people behind the Biden administration who have pushed this for 25 years, they they know what the effect is. They've seen, they've seen it in Europe. Um, but you know they look at this as okay; these people are ready-made voters that we're, we'll be able to do. Plus, it's the cloward pivot strategy that we can that we can put in place, which is that we're going to break down this society and we're going to create the need and the vacuum for something else that we will be able to control. Thing is, is they won't be able to control it because it's going to be uncontrollable, right? Um, you know, so
0: well, I mean. You know. it- I mean, the dream, I think, amongst um, Western elites, both in Europe and in America, and I just wrote about this this week, is to they looked fondly at what China did during the COVID lockdown, where each person is controlled completely. And so if you have this view where you have a few elites running things, and Scott and I, a couple of weeks ago, or a week ago, or I'm losing track of time, did a podcast about the data coming out about the 1%, the elites, and how they view their fellow Americans. Oh goodness. Yeah. And it's it's absolutely frightening. And I, you know, the conclusion one comes to is that what they would like is a dumb, desperate populace that's easily controlled, where um, you know, someone brought out on Twitter today that, and I thought of Mao too, you know, Russia in Russia they went after the farmers, right? And in Mao did the same thing. One of uh, my neighbors, fa- they were family farmers and the Maoists came and stripped them of their clothes, took their farm over, killed their dog in front of them. And they basically escaped with their lives. And, um, and then Mao starved the people, <laughs> you know, like that's a way to get control. And you know, I'll push back just one little bit of thing, and we we've gone way over time, but I was thinking about what has happened because Texas is a minority majority country or state already. You know, white people have been, you know, outnumbered for a long time now. And I say that, but what happens is in the second and third generation of um immigrants here, specifically in Central America and Um, Mexican immigrants, is they stop viewing themselves as anything, they view themselves as white. Well, this has caused great dismay amongst the Democrats, and in addition, what we're also seeing is, and this happened during COVID, is any free-thinking people moved out of the cities because, you know, literally the county line here, like Harris County and Montgomery County, was so dramatic, like like you could live free in the county I'm in, and uh, truly two miles from me you you were like a slave and so what people did is they sold their houses or um rented their houses and they moved up to montgomery county and so and that was black hispanic asian you name it everybody moved out who was free thinking and um
1: going back to scott's point if we recognize that people are do have individual agency
0: exactly that they're
1: not collective that they right. actually are people who think for themselves then giving them just the slightest bit of oxygen to do so they will right. come around to the truth and that's michael malice and the white pill yes.
0: yeah I, yeah i think so well that's i i, I that's on that right. note i think we should stop that that's a it, it, truly merit and and viewing people as individualism going this is like the american ideal that that's what we need to go back to. This This
1: podcast is the American ideal. It it.
0: is the American ideal.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Ron.
0: Thank you, Ron.
1: (laughs) Guys, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to seeing these millions of snippets that you're going to release.
0: Thank you for being with us. Okay,
1: catch you later. See you soon, Ron.